Big ideas made friendly, and optimism bold but untold. Why overcomplicate? <laughs> hey everyone, welcome back to Soul Scene. On this week's episode, we're talking about simple living in children's stories, which will be an umbrella topic for us to talk about anything we want surrounding <laughs> children's literature, children's upbringing. It'll really be a parenting episode if you think about it. Well, yeah. I guess we're analyzing different children's stories, mostly books and television shows and movies, and trying to find the threads of degrowth almost, solacini, simple living, either lifestyle or just the way the worlds are structured, and kind of analyzing that. We were inspired by a YouTube video, which is called Frog and Toad, The Philosophy of Simple Living. We'll talk about Frog and Toad a little bit later, but because we both are kind of fans of that IP, that series, the YouTube video took our eye, we watched it, and I wouldn't say I agreed with everything, but it certainly was interesting to me and made us want to talk about it. Also, just a note on last week's episode, because this is the second week, which I would say is directly inspired by something, because mm -hmm. last week was inspired by a book that I read quite a lot growing up for some reason called The Book of Awesome, which is the most millennial thing I think I've ever um, been into. <laughs> and it, for those who don't know, it's like a, a compilation of blog posts, I'm pretty sure, by this guy, Neil something. And it was like, they were all numbered, and they were just what he would call awesome things that make life good. So it was like the crunching of leaves, which is very topical for today, or like the last slice of pizza. So that's, yeah. For those who listened to last week's episode, which was about little nice things in the solar scene, that's a little Easter egg as to where that came from. Mm -hmm. But today it all came from Frog and Toad, their swamp, Frog, Toad, me, you. Yeah. I mean, I think anyone who's read Frog and Toad can relate to the characters. They're some of the most universal characters ever put to words, <laughs> I think. I mean, the things that they talk about are always just so relatable. But as you said, we'll get into Frog and Toad later. But I wanted to start with a brief history, a very brief history of children's stories, specifically children's literature for the most part, because that's up until like 20 years ago, most of what it was. But I realized. When I was looking into it, people weren't literate until like a couple hundred years ago. So even saying children's stories were the norm, that's not even in book form. That wasn't the norm until like 1800 or so. Okay. But before then, obviously, it was a lot more oral. And in China, in about around 1000 AD, people started writing down children's stories. So those are the oldest children's books are from China. And a lot of them are still used today in education systems there, which is interesting. But then in the West, which is what we're more familiar with, the stories that we've grown up with, and perhaps a high percentage of our listeners have grown up with, a lot of those aren't weren't around until even like 1600 or so, even in the oral form, because there wasn't childhood psychology to know that kids' brains work differently than adults' brains. So they wouldn't think to like tell them stories adapted to their developmental yes. phase okay. yeah <laughs> parenting was very different until quite recently yeah because of a, a multitude of reasons that makes sense mm -hmm. kids weren't sitting down to watch franklin no they were getting sat down to read about the firmaments of hell right and then they thought maybe mm, we should try and tailor this a bit to kids but then in my opinion i think it went a little bit too far with okay. the way that things are tailored to kids okay and then 
yeah, another huge inspiration for this episode was to talk about my favorite stories that I think are good lessons for adults and kids alike. And they aren't like watered down to just say, oh, don't be bad. Like they really are real. (laughs) Okay. So I'll just introduce what this video on YouTube called uh, Frog and Toad, the philosophy of simple living was kind of talking about. It was, it went into detail about the history of Frog and Toad, who were these two anthropomorphized slightly uh, creatures living in a forest, living in these nice cottages, very little technology. It was a book series and also made into a strange claymation cartoon that we found out about. And the, the stories are very easy to read, like the nothing's over like two syllables and the plots similarly are very simplistic. Mm-hmm. It's like one plot is they find cookies and it's just about them eating cookies. Mm-hmm. Or which who's the like depressed one? <laughs> Toad. Okay, so Toad is this grouchy, um, sad creature, typically. Frog is a more upbeat one. Can you do the Toad voice? <laughs> I was thinking I could get the book and read a passage. Yeah, you That'd can if fun. you want. Okay. Actually, I have a passage right here. Oh, okay, I'll read it. It's, from the, it's on the top of the page. <laughs> this is from the cookies uh, page. I was going to okay. use it later, but you can read it now. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I can do this seriously. Frog and Toad ate many cookies, one after another. You know, Toad, said Frog, with his mouth full, I think we should stop eating. You will soon be sick. <laughs> oh, I don't have a toad. You don't have a toad to quote. Well, just imagine one. Okay. No, Frog. I think we should keep eating cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a few weeks ago when you were sick on the podcast. Yeah. That's what your voice sounded like. But in any case, so that's, that's the Frog and Toad. So this video went into detail about the author, his upbringing, what he said about the books, and why she thought they were popular. And also a little bit about how the morals in these very simple fables could have some relevance in our adult lives, both individual and also structural, I guess, political almost. So we seen all. So we seen all. <laughs> yeah. That's not the word that she uses. That's the word that I'm using. And um, I wanted to, to start by talking about what makes children different from adults on a basic level, especially with regards to how they react to stories. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of thought about the term childish, which I see tossed around a lot these days. Usually just as like a pejorative against any idea that doesn't fit, that doesn't agree with our own, right? So someone has a different opinion, you're like, wow, that's childish, first of all. Mm -hmm. Particularly, I see people using it towards more leftist ideas, anything from like economic policy to, I've seen it used against walkable cities, that's a childish uh, desire, Mm -hmm. or wanting clean air Mm -hmm. and uh, the environment and things like this. And so I I thought about childish, what that means and how it can be good and how it can be bad. And kind of my bad traits for childish, I thought was that impulsive because Mm -hmm. children usually they don't have very much foresight. They don't have much of a appreciation of time and sacrifice and the idea of delayed gratification. Mm -hmm. And as such, they don't really like or do work of their own accord. Like that's, Mm -hmm. I think, quite uncontroversial. And also, of course, there's the fact that children are generally speaking incompetent to take care of themselves Mm -hmm. like they can't cook or you know be Um, that kind of defines children and then in terms of good traits i thought because childish i often think can be a a compliment at least that's how i take it when people Mm -hmm. say it about me (laughs) is that children tend to not tolerate things 
that we grow to tolerate that I don't think we should have grown to tolerate. Mm -hmm. So for instance, like really menial tasks at work, children would be like, no, I'm not doing that. You see it all the time in school. Why do I have to do this? This is silly. This is, you know, whatever. But as, as adults, we, we tend so often just to become so used to it and so numb that it's like, yeah, that's work. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's not something that we should always be so comfortable with. And also I thought the, the fact that children are more naive, so they're less experienced in the ways of the world, um, how things work, uh, tradition, just the, the grooves that we fall into that aren't necessarily optimal. So people use naive often as an insult mm-hmm. or a criticism, but I think it can be a good thing. And, um, and it can mean that children are much less willing to compromise than adults are. Mm-hmm. I think I said in a previous episode that adults, or maybe in one of the zines, that we're so kind of used to compromise that we actually sometimes strive for it, where it's, it, it would be better to uh, stick to our guns a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's relevant um, for a multitude of reasons in storytelling, but the idea that children's stories are told with such a purity of vision, it's such a complete thing, like Frog and Toad, for instance, they're just in this isolated forest, which we never even see a wide shot of the forest in the, the drawings. We just see them there. You don't see them like in context of the wider world or anything else. And the video she mentioned that there's, I don't think there's any telephones, so there's no like outside world calling in. So yeah, these these things are connected in some way. What do you think? Yeah, I think childlike versus childish is an important distinction, yeah, course, just like conceptually, because I think we should all be more childlike. And that is to say, when approached with a problem, just kind of, as you said, go with your gut and don't be practical about it. Mm. Because I think if we were a bit less practical, it'd be like, oh, you can just solve climate change by sucking the carbon out of the air would be what a kid would say. Yeah, but it's like if we actually just think about it and use kind of those mythical, yeah, mythical, like fairy tale like ideas and then try and use our adult knowledge to like achieve them. I think that's a really effective way to go when it comes to problem solving and building nice things. Certainly more fun. Yeah, more fun for sure. I also was thinking a bit about when you're reading children's stories or engaging with children's stories it's like as an adult when you read frog and toad it's like this isn't practical like where do they get their money from where do they get their food from <laughs> old money frog and toad yeah like it's like that's silly and then perhaps yes. people would just like write it all off and similar with even adult stories sometimes like the whole cottage core movement it's like if you had to live on a farm you would not be this content because it's a lot of labor but i think we can kind of move beyond that first level of cynicism, right. Dante's first ring of cynicism, which yes. is adulthood, and then move into like a more, a higher state of analysis when you're looking at these stories. That's a good point. And think, okay, instead of just being cynical, how can I use my adult knowledge to extract from these stories the nice things? Yeah. So in Frog and Toad, well, obviously they work. Well, you know, if I want to be like them, I would still need a job. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what hours of my day could I make a bit more mythical and just like fun and bake more and i think you can just use your analytical brain without being cynical yeah well I, I think in terms of criticism that's uh, an important point to, to go beyond the initial cynicism but also in terms of our appreciation for things like 
simple living in children's stories or the whole cottagecore aesthetic or any quote-unquote aesthetic it's important that we go beyond the superficial level or what people call the aesthetic level mm-hmm. and if our appreciation can mature into something a little bit more fundamental to what it is like that's that's kind of what I hope to get at in in this episode and what the video that we referenced touched on quite a bit which was pleasing to me we're trying to get at the fundamental of frog and toad little bear franklin berenstain bears those are just some of the ones off the top of my head what makes them appealing to children and also to the parents watching which i know Mm -hmm. is the case watching over their shoulder beyond just the aesthetic level of wouldn't it be nice to live in a treehouse with no stress like Mm -hmm. there's i think there's something deeper to it that hopefully the concepts of simple living slow living degrowth whatever you want to call it that they are directly related to Mm -hmm. that reminds me of something i wanted to touch on in this episode i think now's a good time is about children's stories written to just appeal to adults because i was thinking through a list of like the most popular children's books and two came to mind as ones that are written just for the for the adults and not for the kids but then we continue to read them to the kids because they resonated with us so much or people gift them to you because they think they're cool yeah and i don't think that's a great thing so (laughs) the first one that i thought of is very recent it probably wouldn't even have been when you had younger siblings um definitely not when my sisters were young but i've seen them around and they're called baby university books do you know of these i have no idea so the baby university books are basically a series of like five or six books and it's germ theory general relativity atomic like it's like just like those concept rocket science yes that you're always like here jokingly about like oh it's not rocket science or like what have you and they're written they're like 10 pages for kids for like really really young kids and i think that they're written just for the for the joy of the adults yeah they sound more like novelty gifts to be honest Mm -hmm. that's what i always thought they were but then i've seen them just a lot of families have them or like get them as gifts or they're at the library and it's like, okay, it be, it's funny because it's like you have a one or two-year-old walking around saying general relativity. And it's like, oh, that's cute. They're, they're a little genius. Like, they're a little baby genius. How cool. I definitely have always thought that we should introduce concepts like the ones in these books at a younger age. But I think they should be introduced a little bit later in a point where the kids have a tiny bit of context for, like, what they're about. Okay. Like, an idea of what is science. And then you can introduce... Uh, the periodic table because I remember when we started learning that in middle school or high school I was like why didn't we just learn this when we were learning our colors if these are the building blocks why not yeah so I do think that we should treat kids as competent even when it comes to such huge topics but not babies as competent to such huge topics and the other story that I wanted to talk about was the giving tree you know of the giving tree yes so I've read this quite a bit recently (laughs) Um, and I was thinking and thinking, and I was like, this is just a book about abuse. <laughs> if you think about it, because it's like, oh, well, the tree is so giving, and the child is like, it's like what motherhood is, or parenthood is. And I was like, okay, it is what it feels like as a mother, is like giving and giving and giving, but then with no like thanks. But if you're reading this book to a child, you're basically teaching them that this is how you should be. Because we read it to kids from a very young age, The Giving Tree specifically, probably like one till five, you read it to them and then they start reading on their own. 
And it's like from one till six, that's when their morals are basically built. Like they can change as they get older. Mm-hmm. But like anything you read to them at that point is very formative. And I think we need to be a bit intentional about introducing the anti-heroes or the spooky things at such a young age because they kind of can't tell real from fake. And it's like, yeah, you could read The Giving Tree and say, oh, wow, this kid was exploiting the tree. Like, it wasn't kind of him. But it might not. It might be confusing. Well, maybe not real from fake, but they can't tell descriptive from pres- pres- prescriptive is what you're yeah. saying. So it's it's fine for the parents because they can read it and cry and be like, oh, that's what happens because mm-hmm. it's describing. But a kid reading it, you're saying, might subconsciously think, this is what I should do to trees, plants, and fathers and mothers yeah. and older siblings. Yeah. Well, another another story that I think um, does that circle of life thing and equally is purported to appeal both to children and parents is Bambi, which I watched semi-recently, the Disney film. Mm-hmm. And that one, I think, is maybe... It still does the anthropomorphized animals living in a, in a forest, but it's not so isolated, which is really interesting. On a side note, I liked how in the video that we watched, she mentioned that the reason it's so common in these stories for them to just use vague anthropomorphized animals or or creatures that don't have to have a specific age mm-hmm. like humans do is because they can live in this they can exist in this strange personality stasis between and and life state between uh childhood and adulthood mm-hmm. so like spongebob and patrick for instance i've been really interested in their age when i was younger because it was like, well, SpongeBob's <laughs> driving, but he acts like a child, but he has a job. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like this flattening of what children think adulthood is, mm-hmm. which is I'll have the freedom that I can go do whatever I want. Um, and what I want will be to hunt jellyfish in the fields. And blow bubbles and candy. Yeah. Yeah, that's really funny. <laughs> I was also thinking about that, yeah, flattening of the age thing. And... You may notice in every kid's story, the characters don't have parents. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not to say they don't have parents, but it's like they're not on screen or mm-hmm. in the story. Yep. And I think that's really, like the, re- like, the reason that that is 80% of kids' stories is because kids just want more autonomy than we tend to give them nowadays. Yep. And I think this is a new phenomenon because as I was saying, like 400 years ago, kids were just treated like adults. They worked. Yeah. But then... <laughs> It was like, okay, now we treat them a we, bit we too... We baby them too much, to be honest. Yeah, and it's like, you want to not be an absent caretaker, but you also, they need a bit more autonomy and they crave autonomy mm. because then when they're thrown off into school or like have their first opportunity to be alone, they're like, what do I do? Yeah. I've wanted this for a while, but then it's, at least for some people, this is that age 18 when you move out, but... Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny because it's like you never really, well, until the later episodes see SpongeBob and Patrick's parents or Frog and Toad don't have parents or anyone telling them what to do. Mm. And I just think it's really funny. Well, that's why I think adults, uh, counting ourselves in that for whatever reason, um, <laughs> have are too childish in, in many ways. Not childlike mm-hmm. in nice ways, but childish as you would uh, make the distinction. And I, I took that note, I was thinking, what can we learn from kids about the stories that they like? And the first one, yes, was that they just crave autonomy. Even the, <laughs> the video that we watched, it mentioned a quote from the guy who wrote Frog and Toad. And he said that for most children, um, life is kind of like a prison. And I was thinking especially so in 
in our childhoods or in a lot of people who don't live in the middle of cities, physically, you are constrained. You can't get around. You can't see your friends. And that's why in so many of these stories, everything's walkable, be it in a forest, be it on a campus, be it in Bikini Bottom, where they live literally three beside each other. Mm -hmm. And spatially, it's a little bit uh, <laughs> confusing because, yes, SpongeBob is going for his driver's license and there are boats all over the place, but also he walks to work, so it can't be that far away. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that is like a giant part of the, the appeal for kids. Yeah, no cars, no public transit even. It's just you can walk to your friends, well, even, walk to but school. But even if there is transit, they can take it by themselves. Mm -hmm. that's, part of the, that's part of the amazing thing of it. Like I always remember... Um, moving up a little bit in age from the Frog and Toad stuff, going to, say, mi middle school, high school TV shows where the the kids who are, like, anywhere from, I don't know, 11 to 16 are just always hanging out after school at the, mm -hmm. the smoothie shop. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but how did they get there? Because it never shows them being driven mm -hmm. or being driven back. And I think that was always, like, that's the ideal for so many kids watching it yeah. is to have friends that they can easily go see often. Mm -hmm. I saw this post on Reddit, which I thought was rather depressing. And it was someone saying like, um, one of my goals, if I get like really rich, if I become a millionaire or something or a billionaire is to build a neighborhood where everybody like has parties and goes around to each other's houses and shares food and helps each other and things like this. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that just used to be called a neighborhood or a yeah. community and that's that's something that i think is the second thing that we can see from this that children crave that i think adults do too but they don't really notice is um community so there's autonomy and there's also community that i think they are just desperate for because, because so many kids are so isolated yeah and we're in these these fake communities online yeah we also it's just this weird like we're not autonomous as adults but we also are not in community it's like this strange like we just rely, I suppose, on the internet to answer all our questions and also to fill all of our Social psychological needs. needs, yeah, of community. And it's like if all of a sudden you were without internet access, you wouldn't have recipes, you wouldn't know how to fix your bike, you wouldn't know how to change a light bulb, but you also just like wouldn't no, have anyone to ask. Exactly. So it's like such a strange I feel like I'm suspended in jello as a human. It's yeah. just like complete isolation but just complete connectedness and i don't like it and i feel like kids books yeah really speak worlds. to this um and the third thing i thought we can learn about learn from learn about kids from the stories they like is this is younger children obviously but also some older ones is that that this is obvious they're not yet equipped to deal with the heavy things of life at least directly mm -hmm. presented like often it's metaphorical something like <laughs> um watership Watership Down is other one with the rabbit. It's really sad. It's English or something mm. like that. Um, Bambi also, obviously, that has some sadness too. But in the most, for the most part, they're not ready to deal with like the types of things that are presented directly in almost all adult stories. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, are we managing the the gradation, the transition from Frog and Toad to adult stories well enough? Given the, the mm -hmm. fact that we, we've already kind of established, and I think most people would agree that many adults that are coming out of the pipeline are childish in the wrong ways and not enough childlike in the right ways. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how our stories might have impacted that and how they can be better. Yeah, I was thinking a bit about this. And I think, okay, let's say age zero to 10, 
right now kids would just read anything kind of frog and toad and below in terms of like reading level and obviously content level as well because you start reading frog and toad to babies when they're young and then you read it until they're 10 and then they move on to novellas and like chapter books kind of thing but I think in that time period you can start introducing Shakespeare start introducing ancient fables from like all over the world and introducing plays and movies that are of a bit more adult content but presenting it to them in a okay here's this story let's discuss the content of it because in a lot of adult things things are a lot more murky it's like like I wouldn't trust an eight-year-old alone with Shakespeare because there's racism and there's murder and there's like mental health crises in these stories but I think you could literally just read it to them and have discussions and use those kind of I mean like guided readings with kids or just like yeah introducing them even Harry Potter a bit earlier and stories with a bit more moral weight to them mm. and not even not moral weight um real life weight just like things introducing ideas of death and yeah yeah a little bit struggle like, what i wrote in the poem at the start is that they're friendly mm -hmm. which i meant like they're smiley they're usually mm -hmm. happy but they're not always shallow these yeah. kids stories but we mean gradually removing some of the friendliness is what you're saying yeah but keeping it in because i feel like right now how it goes is up until 10 you're reading dr seuss just like fun rhymey stories and then at age of 10, you're unleashed into the full public library. You're out of the kids section. And then you're just like obsessed with the dark and gory stories. And there's no transition or balance because you just want so things are kind of like addicting those like darker stories. Oh yeah, that's taboo. Yeah, taboo. That's the word for it. But I think if we manage the transition with giving them tastes of the taboo, or what's taboo to kids at a young age. And then they would also see the value of just fun, nice stories, poetry. But right now it's just like one or the other. Hmm. Getting back a little bit to the simple living uh, thread that's through a lot of these stories. I was thinking about Pinocchio, which has been on our minds quite a lot recently. I think we declared ourselves Pinocchio, Pinocchio heads. Like what else did you say? <laughs> Pinocchio fiends, Pinocchio fans when we were going around Italy and every town claimed Pinocchio as their own, which I thought was really interesting. When I tried to do research as to where the Disney one is set, no straight answer. So, and, but, but even that I think is interesting because it's set in this idealized old world Europe mm -hmm. um, with an old man who works alone, not for a corporation, pursuing his, his passion projects, not shown to be obscenely successful. And so it's never really uh, questioned as to why he can support this <laughs> but it's the way that it associates the moral sense of right which obviously all the disney movies had at least by the end of it with the community sense of right this is the nice place to live where nice things happen and in the end there's a happily ever after with almost an economic sense of right which is very uh obviously implicit like they never talk about that but it's like this is good this is the fairy tale way of living and even you see it in so many kids films especially which uh, the villain is some big corporate developer trying to snuff out or squeeze out the local artisans mm -hmm. in, in some way. Yeah, 
they're very tactile stories for the most part, which is 33% of the Solacine motto, which is, I think the world should be more tactile. And I think these kids' books just really lean into it because they tell about the smells that everyone's experiencing. In Pinocchio, you can really sense what Geppetto's doing with his hands. He's working on these cuckoo clocks. He's making this wood boy. <laughs> and it's like, it makes you desire to just be more competent with your skills and more engaged with the the everyday things. A lot of these stories are pretty mundane, except for the one magical thing that happens or the one kind of exciting and setting incident. And it's like in Beauty and the Beast, it's like 50% of the story is just Belle walking around the town, enjoying herself in the library. It's just all yeah. these very tactile things. Mm -hmm. You can smell the books. You want to become a well-read person like her. And it's like, yeah, the romance is kind of exciting and special. And like, obviously, the magic of him being a beast and her being a human is like exciting. But it's almost beside the point. Like, that's not what people like when kids read that story. They're not like, oh, I want to be a princess who falls in love with a monster. Yeah. They want to be Belle dusting the house even, and like reading the books. Even subconsciously, that's what you think. They, mm -hmm. they like, like with Geppetto and Pinocchio. He's obviously sad about the loss of his son or whatever, but generally speaking, quite peaceful. Yeah. And I was just thinking about if you modernize it so that he is just some guy sweeping a toy store, mm -hmm. just utterly depressed. Yeah. <laughs> just the way the work, work has changed is what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. But I think there's so much, yeah, outside of the one magical thing in these stories, like there's just, like the reason that Pinocchio appeals to both of us is the the Italian village vibes, like what they're eating in all of the Studio Ghibli movies is just so delicious looking. It's like you could just watch um, Ponyo for the food. It doesn't matter that there's a little fish Ponyo from the yeah, it's true. Paleo Paleolithic era or whatever. It's just like the food, it looks delicious. The houses, you can just like feel the breeze. And it's just a lot more about the lifestyle. Well, yeah, and, like, it's, why, the it's why there are Ghibli films that have no supernatural elements and mm -hmm. those are equally idyllic. Yeah. Exactly. And with Frog and Toad, I think it's the same. It's like, you don't really care that they're fighting over the cookies or his list blew away. But it's like the making of the list or the, the going to the river to swim is like the nice thing. Yes. And I think we can kind of look at these things and think, well, I do that every day. I make breakfast how can i make it a little more fairy tale mm -hmm. i go to work maybe instead of driving i'll take a nice frolic one thing that <laughs> i did disagree with this youtube video on is that it said about it kind of waved away the the aesthetics of frog and toad or their lifestyle and said um of course it would be nice to just relax all day and drink tea and eat cookies in the forest mm -hmm. and it's like i don't think that is the appeal at all i don't think it is relaxation or a stress-free life i don't think it is that I think it's more about being able to choose your own struggle or choose your own mm. uh, striving. Like Geppetto, he's not just sitting down all day. Like he's actually mm -hmm. building these things. Like he is working. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is another thing that people conflate when they talk about childish ideas in stories or in personalities is like, well, yeah, it would be nice to be like that, but really we have to work. And mm -hmm. I think um, most of the, the core of the idea of simple living or degrowth is about changing, not about like removing the idea of work. That's silly. It's about um, changing work so it can be more fulfilling for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
that's a really important thing to try and remember in our daily lives. Yeah, just on the topic of Pinocchio and some other Halloween movies that we've been watching recently, um, I want to talk about this term kinder trauma, which I learned recently, which basically refers <laughs> to the things in stories and media that scared you as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this idea that to some extent I think they're necessary. There's obviously like stories of like an eight-year-old kid being shown com- some completely inappropriate film about spiders when he already has a, a big spider and phobia. i don't know a spider follows him <laughs> and he screeches for yeah. hours <laughs> um but but kinder trauma did you have any of that no there's nothing <laughs> see that's why you are the way you are though so soft weak <laughs> <laughs> because yeah i think about that quite often i mean i didn't watch anything scary until i was yeah. probably but it doesn't have to be scary i was thinking like pinocchio that has kinder trauma for a lot of people because Ple- pleasure island which is where he goes mm-hmm. after he follows temptation the mor- one of the morals of pinocchio is Basically, stay on the path, avoid temptation, and this is what happens when you well, don't. This is what happens when you make the wrong thing. And so I think sometimes that can be a big benefit to actually showing in media what goes wrong rather than always just alluding to it as these shadowy figures. Like mm-hmm. we see what happens to Pinocchio when he lies and disobeys his father's wishes. He turns into a donkey. Yeah. His nose grows. Honestly, Pinocchio is probably the most traumatic thing. And when I think about it, probably was quite formative because i was telling you about it, i was like no it was terrifying like that scene you're like no that's just the normal pinocchio because i thought it was some different version that i yeah, had watched yeah you you said to me <laughs> well i must have watched some twisted version of pinocchio because yeah. i was this scene was awful for me and i was like that's just the disney one a lot of people were yeah. scared by it also in i think it's dumbo there's a scene that terrified a lot of people in that one mm. a lot of old disney movies uh they'll never do that these days yeah but it's a, it's doing it intentionally doing it with morals that aren't like bias i would say don't be like oh you shouldn't you shouldn't work too hard or something like something that's kind of like contentious yes among okay. like parents but i guess the thing is well that's because they were fairy tales so they were hundreds of years old so they yeah. were all correct they're all tested yeah um uh, focus group <laughs> yeah through time slow living what do you think that is Slow living. I think it is mindfulness, engaging all of your senses in as many activities as you can. Yeah. And to do that, you need to have your surroundings be not dangerous to engage with all your senses. Slow living is just how kids are naturally. Yeah. They're not jetting off all over the world. They're not like rushed to do anything. They're going to, if you have an hour to get to school it's going to take them two hours it's going to stop in all the puddles and smell all the flowers naturally meaning without phones yeah but because um kids don't have that thing that adults do like wow that year went quick Mm -hmm. i don't have that but most grown-ups do i think (laughs) i think a big part of how this relates to stories is that in kids stories there's just never time it's never like okay at six o'clock they got out of bed and they went out into the forest. They had to be home yep. by two for lunch. And if they weren't home by two, they were going to be in trouble. Like, there's mm-hmm. none of that. It's just like the story could take place in 10 minutes or it could be like days. Yeah, well, there's like, the cartoon characters, they always have just a wardrobe for the same clothes, right? It's mm-hmm. the same thing every day. Yeah. So for kids, it's just like, that's Bart. It's not like, he's, Bart always looks the same. Yeah. Although he doesn't. I don't like the way he looks now, but like <laughs> his design anyway. Yeah. Um, just an, another note I had, which is that adults have a kind of snobbery I've noticed towards simple morality stories. And one example I think is Lord of the Rings. I've seen recently online people being like, well, that's rather childish because it's such a unnatural or unrealistic um, 
simplified good versus evil story. Mm -hmm. But I think simple doesn't mean bad, as I kind of tried to say with the opening poem. And there's often a, a specific profundity to the simplicity of these stories, a certain mm -hmm. uh, degrowth sentiment to a lot of the worlds also. And it's just this notion that any moral which is simple, adults think, I don't need to learn that because I've had that as a kid. But I often think, but we don't actually act with that. Mm -hmm. Like we don't, you might have heard it, but we don't actually know it. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between knowing something and hearing it. So that's why I think sometimes stories for adults overcomplicate for the sake of keeping people entertained when really, mm -hmm. in terms of morals, you know. It's nice to just hammer it home in yes, adults. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I think we definitely believe, oh, I've heard these simple stories. I want the more hardcore ones to like... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Learn about the hardships of life. But it's like all of the answers to like life's biggest problems are found in the simplest answers. That's why I had that cookies excerpt from Frog and Toad. Because yeah. <laughs> any adult reading that would be like, what is this? This is for five-year-olds. And mm. I would say, well, put down the cookies. <laughs> Stop <laughs> eating the cookies. Listen to Frog. Yeah. Because we think it's for children, but we don't abide by those simple rules or like mm -hmm. if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything yeah adults would think they're being patronized to if a, if a film said that for instance but mm -hmm. really yeah it's good for the world i agree <laughs> speaking of good for the world oh my goodness good for the world the toad do you see it darren yes looks very bumpy i'll kind of describe it for the audience uh it's looking kind of mischievous and toad-like staring mm -hmm. away from us uh a lot of ridges looks kind of sickly on the back and uh four legs yep Big um, eye. i didn't color because i didn't have color pencils but they're usually brown olive yeah. green green well this is in the true kind of minimalist kids literature yeah. illustration <laughs> style it's true so why do you think the illustrations are always so kind of hazy like that and not filled in i think because That's actually a good question. Well, I think it, it fosters the imagination in the children and it fosters this kind of nostalgic connection in the parents because it, memories are like that, right? Like then all the details mm. aren't filled in. So that's often why it's like that. Yeah. That reminds me. I was thinking one of the lessons we can learn from kids' books is the artistic variety. I mean, Frog and Toad is just green and brown. Um, Andrew Loeb's like, other book, well, he has hundreds, but like Owl at Home, if you haven't read that, you should read it. <laughs> It's He's 100%. the author of Frog and Toad, right? Yeah. It's 100% just for adults. I mean, there's one story called Tear Water Tea, where he cries into a kettle and boils it and makes tea as a cathartic experience. Yeah. So appa apparently it Sounds was inspired like by the last story in the Frog and Toad series alone. It was just all about being alone. And those are all brown. There's not even green in it. But then it's like, well, if you tried to present that to kids today, it'd be like if you're presenting the concept of the library to society, it'd be like, they're not going to like that. But then you think about the very hungry caterpillar, which is all collage. You think about the super like primary colors of Goodnight Moon or the like digital news stories that you can sometimes buy. And the variety and like the success of them all, I think we can learn a lot from that in that whatever your skill is, if you have a passion for something, you can put your skill to use to make the passion, like to combine skills and passion. I feel like that's what a lot of children's book authors are they're passionate about storytelling maybe they're not that good at art or they're really good at art 
And they're like, well, I want to put it into use somehow. Anyway, toads. The American toad is a common species of toad found throughout Canada and eastern United States. There's three subspecies, the eastern American toad, the dwarf American toad, and the rare Hudson Bay toad. Uh, they become land-based after metamorphosis, so they don't really go in the water unless they're trying to escape a predator. Mm-hmm. And they're large, squat toads with brown, red, or olive skin and dark blotches with several warts. Some are more warty than others. Have you ever held a toad? I have. They have poison in them. Mm. To poison predators, they can make you itchy. They're not like poisonous to humans. That's what happened to you? It made you itchy? Yeah. They held it in the itchy. wild? Yeah. Wow. My sister... Was it jumping beans? Shout out to her. Yeah. Used to just be obsessed with catching frogs and toads. She'd just have like hundreds and then she'd release them all. And hundreds? Really? Literally. Because <laughs> some places in Nova Scotia, there's like a few hot spots. And there'd be just like a lot of them. So she would have like a net and just scoop them and then put them back. Anyway, I've held them. Um, <laughs> oh, multiple? Yeah. Do they have tongues? Yeah. Did it lick you? I don't think it licked me. Did you ever see one catch a fly? No. What do the bumps feel like? Bumpy. Hard? Mm, yeah. Wet? They're not as slimy as you'd think. Cold? Yeah, cold. Mm. Mm. Heavy? They're weighty. Smelly? They're usually quite smelly. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this specific one can be up to 11 centimeters long. It's a big boy. That's short. I thought toads were like the size of our heads. Oh my goodness. What no. am I talking about? Well, there's some like frog and yeah. toad varieties which are very big, but your average one is like very small, probably okay. like the size of, what would that be? <laughs> a beetle? Like how you imagine a beetle? For those listening at home, she's holding her finger and her thumb roughly an inch and a half apart. <laughs> Thank you for that analysis. Um, this type of toad, they have, when there's a breeding course, so all the men and the ladies get together to breed. Each man sings a different note. Really? In harmony with one another so that the female toads don't get inbred because they recognize certain notes on like the scale mm. as like their families and yeah. they don't go towards those those gentlemen. Did you mention that because in the solo scene that's what humans will do? They'll sing a mating chorus, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, a breeding chorus, sorry. I just thought it was funny. And also the way they describe their their mating call is it starts with one quick note. You went a lot into this, didn't you? To <laughs> <laughs> you went deep into this. Yeah. To alert the ladies that they're about to sing. So it'll be like, ha huh? and then they're like, oh, they're gonna sing. And then they ring out a different note for thirty seconds. So it's like the warning shot and then okay. the thirty seconds. Is that what note. that sound is? Yeah. That really In that's toads? I'm pretty sure. I thought it was insects. It's probably You don't really know. I think it's the toads. Okay. Because people always say it's the... Uh, well, I figured around these hot spots, you would have noticed. Yeah, they say it's the... What's that type of toad or frog? It's like the chirper season or something. And it's a type of frog. Anyway. They're not endangered because they are habitat general. Yeah. So they just like kind of damp places. And it's mm-hmm. like they'll always find a damp place, be it wherever. So their habitats are... Like their natural habitats are being devastated, but they just kind of move around. They're very, They're very chill. Yeah. Yeah. So, Toads, thanks for coming on the episode. Thanks for closing the episode, I think. Yeah. (laughs) I had one final thought. Because I read that books and stories are practice for facing life. And I talked about this a bit in the storytelling series. But when when a kid is, like, again and again going through a story, 
seeing a character fight a battle against a bully or against a, a against boredom, it's practice. And then they can kind of call on that memory. Yeah. That's kind of what stories are, their memories, as you were saying, with the art style to then know how to act in these situations. Because you don't want a kid to have to go through a bunch of bullying to know how to deal with bullying. But it's like if it's presented with rabbits and turtles in the story, they can relate to it and know how to deal with it, but not have to have the the trauma of actually experiencing it. Did that ever happen to you? Because it actually did happen to me. Yeah. Um, Arthur, which was a, a book series and TV show that I adored. Um, he had a bully. You know his name? Buster. No, Buster was his friend. Binky. Binky, sorry. Um, and I had a bully one time. And so I was like, I watched the episode that Arthur, not confronted Binky, but one of the ones in which they kind of butted heads. Mm-hmm. And you knew. Well, I knew, but I wasn't brave enough to yeah. confront him. Um, but just on that note, like, Arthur is set in a city, which is a, a nice city, maybe a little bit too drivey. But similarly, they're always hanging out with a sugar bowl. So mm-hmm. I, I just want to, I want to make it clear that it's not just the living in a forest cottage core thing. Like, it's not, this isn't that. Or at mm-hmm. least it isn't just that. That's a, a handy kind of aesthetic stand-in. Like where you can easily say, "Oh yeah, I want to live like this," mm-hmm. which really means all these other things. But also, there's like, like Hey Arnold was one that I used to really like, and that was just set in mm-hmm. a city about growing up in a city. And but they were still hanging out, and everyone still seemed kind of happy. And obviously, the morality was still was mm-hmm. still there. Maybe that's what we're really yearning for: good people. Thank you all for listening. We will be back next week with. Hopefully, the start of a new series.